As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Flames could be seen coming from an industrial area outside of Toronto, Ontario. As officers and firefighters approached the fire, they could make out a pile of tires that were fully engulfed. The fire had all the hallmarks of an intentional blaze. When the fire was extinguished, an officer noticed a badly burned suitcase sitting on top of the tires. Inside of the case were the remains of a 17-year-old girl and a mystery that would take two decades to unravel. Tonight we present what has been referred to as one of the worst cases of child abuse in modern Canadian history. This is the murder of Melanie Bittersing, and you are listening to True Nor True Crime. Welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. If you're new here, True North True Crime is an independent Canadian podcast that brings awareness to cases of missing people and victims of violent crime. If you need help spreading awareness about a case, we would love to help. You can email us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. In this episode, we are talking about the 1994 murder of 17-year-old Melanie Bittersing. Melanie's remains were discovered in an industrial area in the city of Vaughan, outside of Toronto. It was clear that this was a murder investigation from the start, but this case would take decades to come to a resolution. 
We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and court documents and information from the W5 episode that was produced by the lead investigator from this case after his retirement. That investigator, Steve Ryan, has also written a book titled The Ghosts That Haunt Me, Memories of a Homicide Detective. That book includes this case. Full disclosure here, we have not read this book, but it's definitely on our list. We will be quoting heavily from two specific court documents in this episode. In fact, they will inform the majority of information found uh, in this uh, particular episode. As an additional content warning, this episode deals with the neglect, abuse, torture, and murder of a teenage girl, as well as the abuse of other children. This episode also contains a suicide. The content in this episode will be quite graphic, but we will do our best to keep it as clinical as possible. We know that episodes that deal with violence towards children can be incredibly challenging to listen to. We feel the same way. We do believe that there is merit, however, in this story being heard. However, if you need to skip this one, we totally understand. This case takes place in Toronto, Ontario. Toronto is Canada's largest city with a population of about 2.8 million people. However, the population of the greater Toronto area is estimated at around 6.7 million. Toronto is a very diverse and busy place. It is the epicenter of business in Canada. The population itself is quite diverse, with many Torontonians able to trace their roots all across the world. Toronto is policed by the Toronto Police Service, the Ontario Provincial Police, as well as many municipal police forces in the surrounding cities. Due to its large population, Toronto does have the highest homicide numbers in Canada. In fact, in 2021, there were 117 homicides. But this case takes place in 1994, when the population of the greater Toronto area was a little smaller at just 4.5 million people, and there were 85 homicide victims that year. At approximately 3 a.m. on September 1, 1994, a York Regional Police Officer was alerted to flames coming from the rear of a building in a commercial area in the city of Vaughan. He drove his cruiser to the location and attended the scene. He came across an intense fire with flames reaching as high as 8 feet in the air. The fire was set beside a dumpster. At first, the officer thought it was a tire fire. But after the fire department extinguished the blaze, they were able to recognize that the center of the fire was a suitcase. Upon closer inspection, the remains of a human body were discovered in the debris resting inside the metal frame of a suitcase. A post-mortem examination of the remains was conducted that same day. The coroner believed that they were looking at the remains of a teenage girl who was approximately 5 foot 2. Prior to the commencement of the examination, the remains were weighed and the weight was recorded at just 50 pounds. The coroner's opinion was of the view that only 10% of the body had been consumed by fire, and based on that, he estimated that she had weighed about 55 pounds at the time of her death. This is the weight of an average 8-year-old girl, and not a teenager. According to experts, for a female of the same height and age, the bottom of the normal range of weight was about 100 pounds. The attending coroner stated that at the time of the autopsy, he did not attempt to determine whether any of the bones had been fractured. The remains were x-rayed, but the x-ray technology that was available in 1994 was not advanced enough to reveal what was found years later. When technology advanced, doctors discovered 21 fractures. 
These were to the spine, ribs, pelvic girdle, kneecap, and ankle. The fractures were in all different states of healing, which indicated that they had occurred between three weeks and six months prior to death. These injuries were extensive, as this would have resulted in considerable pain and most likely immobility. At first, experts were not able to determine the cause of death. However, a further postmortem led to new discoveries and perhaps an answer to how this young girl died. Two findings that were made at the time of the postmortem examination turned out to be pivotal. The first was the presence of frothy fluid within the bronchial tubes. The second, and ultimately more significant, was the presence of watery fluid in her right maxillary sinus. What the doctor found in the fluid surprised him, namely diatom frustules. A diatom is a single-cell aquatic plant that is found in naturally occurring bodies of water such as lakes, rivers, and streams. Finding diatoms in the sinus indicated to the doctor that the victim had inhaled water prior to her death. The discovery of evidence of the inhalation of water in a sinus cavity of a body that was found in a burning suitcase that was far from any body of water was an unexpected finding. Based on this evidence, several doctors came to the conclusion that the cause of death was drowning. All of this research and testing took place over years. And as technology advanced, conclusions became clearer about the cause of death and the horrible reality of this girl's last days on earth. It was clear that she was malnourished, neglected, beaten, and tortured over a prolonged period of time before being murdered and eventually disposed of. At multiple press conferences, the Toronto Police Service appealed to the public time and time again for help in identifying the unknown girl in the suitcase. A facial recreation model was presented using her actual skull and teeth. Experts built what they believed to be her face around her existing bone structure. They determined that the girl was about 17 years old and of either Ethiopian or Somalian descent. It would take over 20 years to make sense of what happened to the girl in the suitcase. But in order to do that, we need to go back in time to the year 1977. We will also need to travel almost 3,000 kilometers away to the Caribbean island nation of Jamaica. Opal Austin grew up incredibly poor in the south side of Kingston, Jamaica. Starting in the 1970s, Opal would become a young teenage mother, giving birth to five children from two different fathers. Both men left her to raise the children on her own. She did this in a one-room dirt floor dwelling made from salvaged steel. There were no windows, no running water, no air conditioning or heat. There was one mattress on the floor that she shared with her five children. Two of her children were conceived with a young man named Everton Bittersing. On August 5th, 1977, she gave birth to a daughter, Melanie, and then 18 months later, she gave birth to her son named Dwayne. Everton did not stick around. In fact, he left the country and immigrated to Canada for better opportunities in 1979. Everton Bittersing would go on to father seven children in total with four different women, including Opal. After Everton left Opal, she struggled to survive in an area that most Canadians would consider impoverished. She worked her days at a coconut stand selling coconuts. At night, she would come home to her children. Life was becoming incredibly hard for her to survive, but she managed. Opal loved all of her kids, and her daughter Melanie was always helpful. She was a quiet girl who liked to read and draw. She loved children, and she took care of her younger siblings. 
She would give up things if they needed them. She also did household chores for her mother. Melanie did not have any health problems as a kid apart from normal ailments like a cold or the flu. She was slim, but she had a good appetite, and Opal never had problems getting Melanie to eat. She was attending school and had ambitions of being a nurse when she grew up. In 1989, Everton returned to Jamaica with his new wife, Elaine, and their two young boys. Everton suggested to Opal and another woman named Beverly, who also had one of his other children named Cleon, the prospect of having his three Jamaican children, Melanie, Dwayne, and Cleon, coming to Canada to live with him and his new wife, Elaine. Now, these children were living in impoverished circumstances in Jamaica, so the proposal to have Melanie, Dwayne, and Cleon come to Canada was presented as an opportunity for them to have a better future than they could have hoped for in Jamaica. After considering the matter, Opal and the other mother, Beverly, agreed to let their children go to Canada. Once the deal was agreed upon, Everton, Elaine, and their two boys flew back to Toronto with the other three children being booked on a flight at a later date. And so, on January 25, 1991, Melanie, Duane, and Cleon flew from Jamaica to Toronto to begin a new life. Melanie was 13 years old when she boarded that flight. One can only imagine the hopes and dreams she carried with her. According to the eldest brother, Cleon, the kids were bouncing with excitement at what a life in Toronto might look like for them. When the three children arrived in Toronto, Elaine and Everton and their two boys met them at the airport and took them to their new home, a one-bedroom, 700-square-foot apartment on the 22nd floor of a high-rise building at 22 Close Avenue in the Parkdale area of Toronto. A one-bedroom apartment for two adults and five children was obviously a cramped living arrangement. Almost as soon as the kids arrived in Canada, the abuse began. Initially, it was directed at the older child, Cleon. But then Everton and Elaine began abusing Melanie. While the abuse of Cleon and Duane varied, the abuse of Melanie increased over time. Melanie was never enrolled in school in Canada. She only ever saw a doctor once in the three years that she was in Toronto. Melanie was also forbidden to leave the apartment. By all social and community metrics, Melanie did not exist in Canada. She was a ghost. Melanie's life inside the Bittersing apartment can only be described as a living hell. For the entire three and a half years of her life in Canada, she was required to sleep on the floor on a piece of cardboard. Throughout those years, she was routinely deprived of food. The Jamaican-born children were not allowed to use the same dishes as the rest of the family. Elaine felt that they were evil, that they were dirty, and that they had germs. Melanie, Duane, and Cleon were forced to clean every corner of the apartment daily. At some point, Cleon was given the responsibility of doing the cooking for the whole household at just 17 years old. After Elaine gave birth to her new child, Charmaine, the entire responsibility of caring for the baby, feeding her, changing her, comforting her, and washing her clothes was assigned to Melanie. Elaine and Everton were both devout Christians, but rather than take care of her children, Elaine retreated into the bedroom to watch religious programming from morning to night. Everton would drag Melanie into the bathroom by her hair and flush her head in the toilet as a punishment for any perceived infraction. In the summer, 
Melanie and Cleon were not allowed to shower inside the apartment. Instead, a curtain was rigged up in a corner of the balcony to afford a degree of privacy. They were provided with a pail, which they filled with water from the bathtub. They would soap themselves up on the balcony and then pour the pail over themselves to rinse. Over time, Melanie's urine developed a strong smell, this due to malnutrition, and Elaine did not want her using the bathroom anymore. Everton put a pail out on the balcony with a plastic bag inside, and in the summertime, Melanie was required to use it as a toilet. Everton would punish Melanie by locking her outside on the balcony. Other forms of punishment were to confine her inside a barrel, or Melanie would be ordered to squat down in a tiny broom closet and stay in that position with the door closed for hours. Cleon was used as an enforcer for Everton, maybe in a deal to make the abuse he was receiving stop. So he would monitor Melanie's behavior, and one day Melanie attempted to escape. Her young, emaciated body ran out of the apartment, but keep in mind she didn't know where she was, and she was on the 22nd floor of a building in a major city thousands of miles away from home. She had no connections, and she had nowhere to go. Cleon found her crying and hiding inside a stairwell of the giant apartment building. He brought her back to the apartment and reported her to Everton, who punished her. After Everton learned that Melanie had tried to leave the apartment, he obtained a chain and handcuffs. They were connected to Melanie's ankle. The chain was then attached to a wall unit. Melanie would be beaten before going to sleep and chained. The chain would be taken off in the morning. Melanie was beaten almost daily. The assaults included punching, kicking, and stomping as she lay curled up in a ball on the floor. She could not fight back and was not a threat. Melanie constantly had bruises all over her body and it was clear to anyone in that home, especially the two adults, that Melanie was struggling to survive. Elaine participated in a few beatings of Melanie, including spitting on Melanie and hitting her with a teacup. She said that Melanie, Duane, and Cleon had brought back a curse from Jamaica, that they were Satan, and that they were not supposed to be there. Elaine did not want them in the apartment with her Canadian-born children. With religious fervor, Elaine would take Melanie by the head and say, I'm going to take the devil out of you. I know how to take the devil out of you. On top of all this, the food for the Jamaican-born children was rationed and withheld as punishment. Melanie was dying before their eyes. Young Duane, who was Melanie's 14-year-old brother, eventually got a job delivering newspapers. One day in 1992, Duane did not come home. Duane had learned that one of Opal's friends from Jamaica was living in Toronto. Her name was Ava. Duane found where she lived and presented himself at her door. She invited him in for some food. While there, he asked if he could sleep over. Ava said that he would have to ask Everton and Elaine for permission. It was then that Duane expressed that he would be hurt by Everton if he returned. He stated that when Everton, Cleon, and Elaine came looking for him, that they would kill him, and he did not want to go home. Everton knocked on Ava's door first thing in the morning. She woke Dwayne up to tell him that it was time to leave. Dwayne looked terrified and stated, They're going to kill me. After leaving Dwayne at home, Everton returned to Ava's home to ask what Dwayne had told her. She stated that he had not said anything. Everton was not happy with this answer, but left anyway. 
Meanwhile, back in the apartment, the furniture in the living room was moved to create a fighting ring so that the family could beat Dwayne. Elaine was told to go into the bedroom and shut the door. Cleon and Everton came into the bedroom to talk to Elaine before the beating began. While in the other room, they heard a scream. 14-year-old Dwayne had jumped or fallen from the balcony and dropped 22 stories to his death. Police investigated this incident and it was ruled a suicide, and that was the end of the investigation. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the tragic life of Melanie Bittersing, a teenage girl along with her siblings who suffered unspeakable abuse at the hands of her family members after moving from Jamaica to Toronto. In 1992, her younger brother Dwayne died of an apparent suicide at just 14 years old after jumping from a 22nd floor balcony. Her mother, Opal Austin, had no idea of the horrors that her children were experiencing in Canada. Back in Jamaica, Opal relied on using a payphone and collect phone calls to hear from Melanie and Duane. However, she was only able to speak to her children two times out of dozens of attempts. Most times, Everton told her that the children could not speak as they were in school. Eventually, he finally just said he couldn't afford these collect phone calls anymore, so she was no longer allowed to speak to her children at all. But one day she received an urgent phone call in 1992. It was Everton. He told her that Dwayne had died by suicide, and that Dwayne was scared that he was going to be sent back to Jamaica for being bad, so he just jumped off the balcony. Opal didn't think that this was accurate, so she petitioned the Jamaican government to help her bring Melanie home. The Jamaican government did an investigation, relying mostly on answers given by Everton. They ruled that Melanie was happy and healthy in Toronto. Her application to bring Melanie home was denied, and no one from the ministry spoke to Melanie. Then years went by, and Opal did not hear from Melanie, Everton, or Elaine. 
However, in the late 90s, Everton and Elaine moved back to Jamaica with their Canadian-born children. Opal, Melanie's mother, spoke to them while they were in Jamaica. She asked why Melanie was not with them. Everton and Elaine told Opal that Melanie had run away. They said that she was a thief and she had stolen money, and rather than face the consequences, she ran. When Opal asked more questions, Everton suggested that Melanie had moved to the United States and that they had lost contact with her. For several years, Opal carried an old photograph of Melanie. While working at the coconut stand, she would approach customers who she thought were from the United States. She would show them the photo of Melanie and asked if they had seen her. It was the only thing that she could do. Seventeen years after the burning suitcase was found, the remains had still not been identified and the victim remained a Jane Doe. In 2011, Everton and Elaine moved back to Canada from Jamaica. They settled in the city of Welland, Ontario, located one and a half hours from Toronto. For almost a year, they attended a church in St. Catharines, Ontario. Everton and Elaine were constantly presenting as a couple in need. They sought advice and financial help from the congregation. Their pastor, Eduardo Cruz, did his best to help the couple. Elaine would often go to the pastor with her problems. But the pastor noticed that Everton would linger. It seemed that he was not able to let Elaine out of his sight. In late November of 2011, Elaine asked the pastor if she could speak with him privately. Everton hovered in the background. Pastor Eduardo Cruz asked Everton to give them some space, and Everton eventually stepped away. Elaine looked at her pastor and stated, Everton killed a girl. The pastor asked for more information. Elaine clarified that the girl had been starved to death and that her body was put into a suitcase and burnt. She said that it was all over the news and a big story, and that Everton was responsible. The pastor told her that he would need to go to the police, which she responded, Do what you need to do. The pastor contacted the Toronto Police Service. As 17 years had passed, it took Toronto Police Service some time to figure out which cold case this was referring to and if Elaine was being truthful. Investigators arranged to speak with Elaine to confirm her claims. She stated to investigators that Everton had killed his daughter Melanie, by starving her to death. Investigators used a DNA sample gathered from Opal in Jamaica. They were able to positively ID the girl in the suitcase as 17-year-old Melanie Bittersing, a Jamaican-born teenage girl who no one knew was living in Toronto. The girl who for so long had no identity now had a name. On March 2, 2012, warrants for the arrest of Elaine and Everton Bittersing were issued, specifying six offenses alleged to have been committed with respect to Melanie's death. Those charges included failure to provide the necessities of life, failure to provide the necessities of life as a person in charge, criminal negligence causing bodily harm, aggravated assault, forcible confinement, and indignity to a human body. At the time, Everton and Elaine were living in Welland, Ontario, and arrangements were made to have Niagara Regional Police Officers attend their residence to arrest them, and members of the Toronto Police Service would transport them to Toronto to be interviewed. A warrant was also issued for Cleon, Melanie's older stepbrother. His arrest was to occur simultaneously in Calgary, Alberta, where he had been living. 
When brought in after her arrest, Elaine stated that on the night that Melanie had died, Everton came into her bedroom. He said to her that Melanie had, quote, stiffened up. They went to the closet where she was being kept. Everton kicked her a number of times and she did not move. Everton then made Elaine and Cleon join him to dispose of her body. Elaine admitted that it was her idea to put Melanie in a suitcase. They then drove to an industrial area where Everton placed the suitcase on a pile of tires and used an accelerant to light the fire. During her interview, Elaine presented as a victim of the whole thing and tried to make it seem that she had no part in the mistreatment of the children or Melanie. The police felt that she was being dishonest. Everton's interview was long. He did not admit to any part in Melanie's death. But at the end of the interview, he looked at the investigator and said, quote, Officer, get your information good, because God is watching you too. Do a good job. Cleon was 19 turning 20 when Melanie died, a teen who was living in a brutal household filled with physical, mental, and emotional abuse. He was often used by Everton as an enforcer on the other children. After Melanie's death, he left Toronto and moved to Calgary to start a new life. He never spoke a word of the murder or the horrors that he lived through. Police saw Cleon as an opportunity to get the real story. If they could get him to be a witness, the whole case would be a lot stronger. Cleon shared with detectives about Melanie's last night. He stated that in the last months of her life, Melanie was very weak and she was, quote, pining away. Her condition was getting worse. She was not able to hold down her food, and when she walked, she walked with a limp. She complained about pain in her foot, her stomach, and her hip, which was hardly surprising, keeping in mind that she had 21 fractures. Up until the end, however, she was able to do her chores, but because of her weakened condition, Cleon had been cleaning Melanie when she soiled herself, and he could see her bones. The last time he saw his sister was on the night she died. He said that she was weak and she was crying while she held baby Charmaine. He testified that when he went to bed, she was lying on her piece of cardboard in the living room facing towards the balcony, curled up in a ball. He said she looked like someone who was dying, but he did not think she was going to die. That night, at some point between the time when Cleon went to bed on the evening of August 31st, 1994, and about at 3 a.m. on the morning of September 1st, Melanie died. Based on the evidence, there were two possible causes of death. The course of severe neglect, malnutrition, and abuse to which Melanie had been subjected to for close to three years, and drowning. Cleon stated that Everton woke him up to tell him that Melanie had run away. Everton told him to search the apartment while he and Elaine went to search by car. Cleon states that this is when Everton took the suitcase carrying Melanie to the car. By the end of the three interviews, Elaine and Everton were both charged with the murder in addition to the other charges. A decision was made to drop the charges against Cleon. The formerly accused now became a witness. In October of 2015, the trial began for Everton Bittersing. The Crown relied on the testimony of Cleon and expert witnesses. Cleon's testimony was attacked. The defense could not understand why such a large athletic man who had at the time of the murder just turned 20 couldn't save Melanie. The defense pressed further, stating that he could have asked for help or reported the murder years later. Cleon struggled to explain how he lived in terror his whole life from the years of abuse he suffered. 
This abuse had conditioned him to keep quiet. Elaine Bittersing also testified against Everton while she was out on bail awaiting her own separate trial. Elaine stated that she was a woman living in an abusive relationship. The defense team tried to strip away that statement. The defense lawyer stated that Elaine was lying about being abused by her husband. Quote, My suggestion to you, Elaine, is that you fabricated this entire story about Everton constantly beating you because you wanted sympathy from the police. She stated, Police cannot give me sympathy. Jesus Christ gives me sympathy. I do not fabricate things. The lawyer said, You wanted police and Crown attorneys to believe that you were a victim. You were thinking that was the only way you'd avoid criminal consequences. She stated, I know if I don't open my mouth and talk, we wouldn't be standing there. You wouldn't have a job, so that's not correct. When the three-month-long trial ended, the jury deliberated for four hours and found Everton Bittersing guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Elaine's trial began in May of 2016. The Crown presented their case that Elaine was in fact the mastermind of the abuse at home. Evidence was presented about her ferocious religious convictions and her belief that the Jamaican-born siblings were the devil. She was also known to control the money in the household, and no decisions were made by Everton that she was not a part of. The defense, of course, presented her as an unwilling victim of abuse. Again, Cleon took the stand, and he was seen by the jury to be credible. But again, he was attacked by the defense. On June 20th, 2016, the jury found her not guilty of first-degree murder, but guilty of second-degree murder. Elaine Bittersing was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 16 years. It should be noted here that in both trials, the jury was not allowed to know the details about the death of 14-year-old Dwayne Bittersing, who allegedly jumped to his death from the 22nd floor balcony. They could only know that he died as a timeline marker in the narrative. In fact, in January of 2016, before Elaine's trial, a series of articles began to circulate with titles proclaiming what the Bittersing jury did not hear. And what they didn't hear is that there was an incident that could have saved Melanie's life. During the course of the investigation into 14-year-old Duane's alleged suicide, some facts became known to police. It has been revealed that the police did interact with Melanie that night. Not only that, the responding officers noted Melanie's bruises during their investigation into Duane's suicide. The following is from a National Post article by reporter Christy Blatchford. Police were dispatched on the night of Duane's death. The building superintendent identified the boys' apartment and they headed up to suite 2203. Cleon answered the door. Only he, Melanie, and the baby were there. Everton and Elaine had left the apartment before police arrived. Cleon told them that Duane had been acting up, was jealous of the attention Melanie got, and that Duane had beaten Melanie up the day before. Everton called from a phone booth during this interview to talk to the police investigators who were in his apartment. He told him he knew what had happened, but could not deal with it yet and that his wife was screaming, crying, and trembling and he had to deal with her first. In the apartment, constables were interviewing Melanie. They noticed an astonishing array of injuries on the girl, then just 15 years old. There were welts and scratches covering her arms and her legs, 
and there were welts on her stomach, a cut to her head, and she had a swollen nose, swollen ankle, and hand. One officer's handwritten notes of Melanie's injuries were two full pages in length. The officer suggested that Melanie see a doctor, but Cleon said that the baby would start crying if she were to leave. So the officers just didn't do anything. Two years and three months before her own body was found in a torch suitcase, Melanie Bittersing was already so badly hurt that her injuries took two pages to detail. The article goes on to say that when Melanie was asked by the officers about her injuries, she blamed Dwayne. Both officers were rookies, but they detailed the injuries and filed a supplementary report. Neither of them notified child welfare authorities because that was the responsibility of the senior detective that would have continued with the investigation into Dwayne's sudden death. Three days later, the main detective on Dwayne's death interviewed the parents himself. Everton told him that Dwayne had been causing problems, that he was jealous of Melanie, that he'd threatened suicide before, and that just before he'd jumped from the balcony, Everton told him that they were going to be sending him back to Jamaica if he kept hurting his sister. The lead detective wrote in his report, quote, At no time was anyone else on the balcony with Duane. Mr. and Mrs. Bittersing left the apartment because they could not face what had happened and did not even stop to look at the body. He added in a section he labeled officer's opinion, quote, It is the opinion of this officer that the family are telling the truth in this matter and that the forensic examination will confirm this. He believed what Everton, Elaine, and Cleon and Melanie had told him, that Duane had beaten up Melanie and that he had jumped off the balcony. The sudden death investigation never became a criminal investigation. So this was the night that Melanie could have been saved. Several officers spoke with her, witnessed and took notes on her injuries, injuries that were varied over um, periods of healing, injuries that appeared to happen over time. No one checked to see if she was in school, if she was eating, or anything. They just, they just left her there. Melanie's mother, Opal Austin, flew from Jamaica to Toronto for the sentencing hearing against Elaine Bittersing, the woman who was convicted of brutally torturing and starving her daughter until she died, and then threw her away like garbage. She read the following impact statement. I'm thankful for this chance to have my say today, but it is the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. To express how I am feeling into words that fully express the impact of this horrific crime against my precious daughter, Melanie. There is nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, Melanie would have ever done that could have led to the dreadful outcome of her murder. So I'm left wondering why for the rest of my life. Melanie was my angel, full of love and care for others. She had dreams to be a nurse and she loved to sing. Her dreams were possible to achieve because she was smart, caring, and people loved her. She loved her family and I could have not loved her more. I missed her very much when she immigrated to Canada, but I believe deep in my heart that it was for the best. And as it turned out, it was for the worst. For the very person I expected to keep her safe and support her dreams turned out to be the cruelest nightmare she will never wake up from. So now I am left to relive images of the nightmare she went through over and over. I no longer sleep in peace. My nerves are on edge. My body is weak and I feel sick all over. 
I cannot stop thinking of how much she suffered. In the aftermath of Melanie's death, several people have tried to lobby the government to increase safeguards for children moving to Canada from other countries, to make sure that they get enrolled in school, and to make sure that they are known, so that there are no invisible children. So far, no new laws have been created. If you or someone you know is experiencing child abuse, there are people out there who will help. Call 911 if you or the person you are reporting about is in immediate danger, or call the child abuse hotline to get help if you or children you know are being neglected, abused, or sexually exploited. If you believe a child is at risk, you must report it. Help is available in multiple languages 24-7. The phone number is 1-800-387-5437 in Canada and the United States. Elsewhere in the world, dial Double zero one seven eight zero four two seven nine four eight five. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We'll see you soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.